This is an audio-only version of a Then and Now video. To see the full video, search Then and Now on YouTube. Enjoy. If the development of science has been the most consequential and progressive development in our history, then Francis Bacon has a claim on being one of history's most important and consequential thinkers. He was the first to try to systematise what we now call induction, otherwise known as the scientific method. Bacon was born in London in 1561. He was an establishment figure, born into one of the most powerful families in Britain. He was a member of the House of Commons and the House of Lords for 37 years, a lawyer, attorney general and a member of the Privy Council the group which advises the monarch. He died of pneumonia after carrying out experiments with ice in 1626. He was incredibly popular in his day. Voltaire praised him. His influence on the Enlightenment was considerable. Thomas Jefferson commissioned portraits of Newton, Locke and Bacon. He was fascinated by the scientific discoveries of his day. The printing press, the compass, gunpowder and so on. He's interested in the question of what's useful, practical, the pursuit of improving our place in the world. He thought that the scholastic philosophy taught at the time was dry, closed off, esoteric, at a dead end. But before we look at his philosophy, it's important to understand Bacon's motivations. Bacon was, remember, an establishment figure and a lawyer, and before he became more interested in science and philosophy, he was interested in the law. He wanted to reform the legal system of England. He wanted to systematise it so that its truths could be more easily discovered and interpreted. He thought there was an underlying structure to the legal system that could be simplified. In other words, he was interested in consolidating and structuring the discovery of truth within an institution. He said of the Roman Emperor Justinian, for example, that having peace in the heart of his empire, chose it for a monument and honour of his government to revisit the Roman laws and to reduce them from infinite volumes and much repugnancy into one competent and uniform corpse of law. We're looking then for uniformity. Bacon's solution was a collective central process of trained lawyers organising and categorising reports, records and statutes. But importantly, this needs a central authority. So here we have one motivation. But he's also looking for what is useful. He wants to make philosophy more practical. And in this, he's against what he calls the vain notions of scholastic philosophers and the blind experiments of the alchemists. At the time, philosophy included natural philosophy, the study of the natural world. But Bacon looks to the great inventions of his time, the printing press, the compass, gunpowder, and sees that they were discovered more by chance than any philosophical pursuit. We can see this in a speech he wrote to the Queen in 1594. He says, I will commend to your majesty four principal works and monuments of yourself. First, 
the collecting of a most perfect and general library, wherein whatsoever the wit of man hath heretofore committed to books of worth. Next, a spacious wonderful garden, wherein whatsoever plant the sun of divers climates, out of the earth of diverse moulds, either wild or by the culture of man brought forth, may be with that care that appertaineth to the good prospering thereof set and cherished. Third, a goodly huge cabinet, wherein whatsoever the hand of man by exquisite art or engine have made rare and stuff. Fourth, such a still house, so furnished with mills, instruments, furnaces and vessels, as may be a palace fit for a philosopher's stone. So how does he suggest we go about this pursuit, the systematization of practical and useful knowledge? Well, first, to know the truth, we have to be able to distinguish it from falsehood. And for Bacon, the mind does a good job at distorting the truth. He said that the mind was a crooked mirror, distorted by what he called idols. He wrote, The mind of man, far from being a smooth, clear and equal mirror, wherein the beams of things reflect according to their true incidents, is rather like an enchanted mirror, full of superstition and imposture. Now idols are imposed on the mind, either by the nature of man in general, or by the individual nature of each man or by words or nature communicative. There are four idols. Idols of the tribe, idols of the cave, idols of the marketplace, and idols of the theatre. By tribe he means humans, and so here he means the errors of human nature. There are many we could think of, but Bacon points to a few. For example, we all suppose that the world is more ordered than it is, in Bacon's day, there was the assumption that the planets orbited in a circular manner, or that there were four elements and four humours of the body. Another idol of the tribe is that we believe what we want to be true rather than what is, or we follow our emotions over our reason. He writes, subject to influence from the will and the emotions, a fact that creates fanciful knowledge, in short, Emotion marks and stains the understanding in countless ways which are sometimes impossible to perceive. Next, we have the idols of the cave. These are personal, individual biases. They arise from the particularity of our education or custom or experience, etc. We might have, for example, a fascination with a single subject. He also talks here of the role chance plays in human affairs. Next, there are idols of the marketplace. They come from the limitations of human communication, what Bacon calls the biggest nuisances of all. He references the names of things that don't exist, referring to fiction or concepts in philosophy, while also pointing to how language is vague and words ill-defined. Adjectives like rare, bright, or heavy refer to degrees and aren't specific enough. Finally, there are the idols of the theatre, and he's referring here mostly to philosophy and its dogmas, how philosophers try to convince you that their system is the right one, using flowery language. He writes, 
there are also philosophers of another type who have laboured carefully and faithfully over a few experiments and have had the temerity to tease out their philosophies from them and build them up. The rest they twist to fit that pattern in wonderful ways. Once we are aware of our own biases, Bacon argues, we can proceed to study the world. The most popular way of finding the truth of some matter at the time was by syllogism. This was the method advocated for by Aristotle. Okay, syllogism starts with a premise or idea and then proceeds logically. For example, by syllogism, we can say that if A is true and B is equal to A, then B must be true. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man, Socrates is mortal. It takes general ideas and extrapolates from them, but this has its limitations. Say we're trying to work out what heat is. We might say heat is caused by brightness, as the sun, fire and light seem to cause heat. And so by syllogism, we can say that heat is caused by brightness, therefore the moon is hot at night. Or by contrast, we could say that heat is caused by brightness, therefore boiling water cannot be hot. Clearly, there are some limitations here. Bacon suggests another way, induction. He writes, The syllogism consists of propositions, propositions consists of words, and words are counters for notions. Hence, if the notions themselves, this is the basis of the matter, are confused and abstracted from things without care, there is nothing sound in what is built on them. The only hope is true induction. Bacon is interested in causation. What causes something to be hot, for example? He's interested in understanding how those natural processes work through what he calls their forms, Forms are the properties of something, something's shape, something's colour, its heat, its weight, for example. And he writes that for the form of a nature is such that if it is there, the given nature inevitably follows. Okay, so instead of starting from general axioms and ideas when searching for the causes of those forms. Bacon says a new beginning has to be made from the lowest foundations. Instead, we start with particular observations and work our way upwards. Bacon does this with the example of heat. So Bacon says we have to make a table of presences, absences and degrees. And you can see in this the beginning of the systematization that's typical of the Enlightenment. And we're looking for the form of heat. So first, Bacon says you list all the places where heat is present, and he does this in New Instrument. So he says, uh, the rays of the sun, thunderbolts, fire, 
boiling liquids, pour stuff inside bodies. And then next we have to list the places where heat is absent. But of course this could be endless. So he says to look for closely related absences. And this is key. So we can see some similarities here in bright things. So the rays of the sun produce heat, but he says the moon does not, nor do stars. Old dumb, dead bodies. And finally, we think about degrees. So we might say that, that when bodies exercise, the faster they move, the more heat they produce. He says that smaller animals produce less heat, like ants, for example, than larger animals. If we think about burning liquids, the hotter they get, the faster they move. And if we think carefully about this, we can simplify it into a number of forms. But brightness, well, bubbling water isn't bright. Flames, well, moving bodies aren't on fire. Aliveness, boiling water, flames aren't alive. By induction, by carefully observing the particulars, we can discover by process of elimination that heat is the product of movement. Bacon's inductive method was a completely new way of approaching philosophy and science carefully observing the world with a mind to understanding it, recording it, so that it can be made use of to make human life better. It opened up many questions that led to the rise of enlightenment thought, questions about the production of knowledge, systematization, and central authority, and he was the first real empiricist, the idea that knowledge must come from sensory experience. So while his ideas seem obvious today, his contribution to philosophy is huge, but it also has its limits, and that is what we'll turn to next time. Hey everyone, I feel very lucky to be able to say that I'm finally at the point where I can commit full time to making these videos. Um, it's a great honour to be able to do that. I absolutely love doing it. I'm going to make two or three videos a month and continue to improve the quality and the research and do a few more experiments and chats and rambles in between. But it is a time consuming job. It's a full time job and it is just me. So unfortunately, right now, Patreon is still the only way that then and now survives. So if you get any value from these videos whatsoever, then please consider pledging a dollar or two dollars on Patreon. If you pledge five dollars or ten dollars or more even, I will add your name to the credits, I will put scripts and the audio, and at some point the videos out early for Patreons only. So if there's anything you'd like to see there, then please let me know. But if you can't afford that right now, then of course it's enough to just press like, subscribe, share, and remember to click that bell to be notified to new 
videos. Thanks so much for watching and I'll see you next time. And I'll see you next time. And I'll see you next time.